There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in town and branch microbiter. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, 27-year veteran of the NYPD, retired sergeant. With me today is former Manhattan prosecutor Dan Bibb with a 24-year veteran who is now a defense attorney. And we're going to talk about the, the case of Orsola Gall. The fact that they made an arrest does not end. the case, they're putting together the evidence, and there's a lot of work done. I want to play a little bit of the walkout of the perpetrator in this case. I'll share the screen. Put it up on the screen. Look. You get to see who this guy is, and uh, it was a mystery. Now it's no longer a mystery. Violent struggle ensues, resulting in our victim being stabbed ruthlessly and brutally in excess of 55 times. Police say Benola used a kitchen knife in the attack. He then allegedly placed her body inside of her son's hockey bag, dragging it several blocks before discarding it. He left behind a trail of blood, along with his jacket in the nearby pool. Detectives also developed leads which led them to a location where he and bloody bandages were discovered. Police say after the attack, Benola sent Gall's husband to home. He then went to the hospital to be treated for cuts to his hands. Sources say Wednesday night, officers zeroed in on Benola's home where they found him with a bandaged hand. He was taken into custody and later confessed. Sources say he told detectives he didn't go to the home with the intention of killing Gall. Instead, he snapped in a fit of rage. Normal mother doing been about her day-to-day -day life, right? Um, why should anything happen to anyone? <coughs> Police add Bonola moved to the U.S. from Mexico 21 years ago. Sources add he is separated from his wife, who also lives in Queens. He has two children of his own. As for Gall, her 13-year-old son was upstairs when she was killed. <laughs> How grateful there is no rest. We're all relieved. Um, relieved. <laughs> Dan, thoughts on that? Good work by the NYPD. Um, the fact that they were, well, not so good work on his part, uh, leaving, obviously left a trail of blood 
from leaving from her home to the body. Uh, but good work canvassing the area, finding the bandages, finding his clothing. Obviously, what's going to happen is that these are now at the lab. They're undergoing DNA testing. There's going to be, her, obviously, her blood on his clothing. Stabbed 55 times, there's going to be a lot of blood. He was most likely covered with it. Uh, it's going to have her DNA in the form of blood. It's going to have his DNA in it. The Great work on the part of the NYPD. You know, Dan, one of the things early on in the investigation, myself and uh, Phil Grimaldi, we had done sort of a, a look into this case. And based on the fact, and you know this, of course, as a prosecutor, a knife is a very personal weapon to use in killing someone because you got to get very close to that person. So usually what it means, and not all the time, but it means that the person or persons know the other person. And the other thing, when you have like an overkill situation like this, she was stabbed over 55 times, there's some kind of rage involved and indicating potentially there's a relationship that may be ending. And that we predicted all of this before they even had this guy. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but all of these indicators, when you see it time and time again in the investigation of homicide, that's what we had uh, sort of sized up the case to be prior to them having a suspect. Uh, Bill, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, just reading from the newspaper, um, the the number of stab wounds, uh, it, it is a, it was a weapon of convenience. Uh, in other words, it's a weapon that he obviously didn't bring there. When I say a weapon of convenience, it was probably the closest thing uh, to him closest weapon to him when he went off. The number of stab wounds clearly indicates personal, clearly indicates rage, uh, clearly indicates anger. Uh, and I'm sure early on in the investigation, um, the detectives probably got into her phone, were looking at text messages, evidently text messages exchanged between the two of them. Uh, they were probably aware early on that there was a personal relationship between the two of them, not just handyman and employer. Uh, but I agree with you, Bill, 100 percent. Every this has all the earmarks of a of a personal killing. Yes, Dan. And what you were just describing is what we would call uh, in homicide investigation. I'm just as for the benefit of the audience is a victimology. And we would do a deep study into the background of the victim. And one of the most important people to speak to when you're doing a background on a victim is the victim's best friend. Because if you ask family, best friend or friends, because if you ask family members, many times they do not know the inner secrets of even someone as close as a husband and a wife. He may not know, you know, and it turned out there was some uh, nefarious activity going on. And in no way, and I know we always get this, oh, don't, you can't victim shame her. We're not victim shaming her. It is our job to do an in-depth investigation and to look at this case. And part of that is the victimology. And I would think early on, the Queen's detectives knew about this uh, David Benola as a potential suspect. I would think they did as well. You're right, Bill. Right out of the box, you're going to have you're going to have detectives canvassing the area for evidence. You're going to have detectives assigned to do the victimology. 
you're going to have detectives assigned to interview to to find out who her closest friends are, to interview her closest friends, uh, to locate them, ask about ask about things that are often or can be uncomfortable. Uh, and it it would not be surprising to me if he was a person wasn't if he was a person of interest within hours of her body being discovered. Dan, you know you're so right, and I I always hate that term person of interest, but you know it's for some way the press and everyone got a hold of it. To me, they're a damn suspect, you know. But no one ever wants to say that. Always oh, a person of interest, you know. I cringe no matter where it is in the country. You're though. Right, no one likes to and, say the word suspect, you know. And you're right. I apologize. I, 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 no, no, that's fine. <laughs> We're all getting into the habit of it because the. You're I think right. it was invented for the press to hold well, them and off. Then there was some television show. Person of interest. I, I know my wife. What used to watch it? I couldn't tolerate it, but. Uh, <laughs> Person of interest. That's All of a sudden, person of interest enters the law enforcement lexicon as if it's now taken the place of the word suspect. <laughs> That's true. You know, Dan, we discussed off the air, and I want to show this photo. Early on in the investigation, they had this video, and this, at the time when they put this video out, this was, I'm going to say, a suspect, not a person of interest, wheeling the body of Osoya Gall in her son's hockey bag down the street. Now, at the time, this was just a suspect, and he's an unidentified suspect. And the facts are you cannot identify him from this because his face isn't shown. However, you and I both discussed off the air, the first thing we would have shown uh, to the suspect when he came into the 112 precinct, we would have showed him this still from the video and asked him, is that you? Not only that, I'm sure that there's other videos. One of that, that probably would have been the beginning of the interrogation is they, they most likely would have taken out either stills from the video or with technology today, it's easy enough to take out your phone or a tablet or a computer and just bring it, bring the video up and in silence, just play the entire video, let them watch it. And then your first question is, that's you, right? And he's going to say, yeah, that's me. And, you know, one of the things we also discussed before we went on the air is I said, you identify that the guy in that video case is over. Yeah. You have, you have your man. That's the person who committed the homicide because no one else, no one, the only person with at that time of the morning, the only person with a motive to dispose of evidence is the person who did the homicide himself. Exactly. So you identify him. You know, you've you have a great case because, you know, from what I've read, there's actually a trail of blood from the house to the bag. Um, he made it a little bit easy once they found the bag, once they found the body in the bag to backtrack on the trail of blood to the house. And uh, also, Dan, when they got him in and they interviewed him, interrogated him, whatever you want to say, he told them that after he dumped the body, which obviously he must have said in the affirmative, yes, that me is in the, that is me in the video, that he walked across Forest Park. And in the park, he dumped his boots and his clothing. And they've recovered the bloody clothing also. And another thing we predicted was, 
And again, I'm not trying to act like I'm a soothsayer, but just through prior experience, we predicted that he would have cuts on his body. And they found out that the next day he had, in fact, gone to a hospital for treatment for pretty severe cuts to his hands. Well, as I, as, as I put it, he's got offensive wounds and she has defensive wounds. Her wounds are most likely, and again, this is just from experience, her most hands are most wounds are most likely on the palms of her hands or on the backs of her hands where she is putting them up in, in a defensive posture, trying to fend off the blows. His cuts come from the fact that there is so much blood that once the knife gets soaked with the blood, it becomes difficult to keep a hold of in your hand. So he continues to stab, but all the while his hand is slipping up the blade because he can't keep a hold of it because it's so wet. And his fingers most likely cut fairly badly because when you're stabbing somebody 55, between 55 and 60 times, every one of these things have, every one of these stab wounds has to be delivered with some force. And every time more blood gets on it, the slippier the knife is, the more likely his hand is to have slipped on the knife. And once he's cut one hand, it would not be surprising if he's going to continue that he then goes to the other hand and the same thing happens. And he, he ends up with what I refer to as offensive wounds on both of his hands. You know, Dan, that was an outstanding uh, explanation of that. I've never heard anyone explain it like that before. That's that, That's great because... I always knew that, you know, because of the rage and all that, but I didn't ne never thought actually that of that the blood is going to get on you and your hand's going to get slippery and the knife's going to move around and it's going to cause you to cut yourself. I, I'm not going to take credit for that. That was as a result of a lecture by uh, one of our esteemed uh, assistant medical examiners probably 30 years ago. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a great explanation. You know, and the other thing, Dan, we talk about, and, you know, to get technical, is um, Locard's theory of, of exchange, uh, Dr. Edmund Locard, who, when two bodies come in contact with each other, one is going to leave evidence of their being on the other person, and vice versa. And in this case, this was a violent encounter. So no doubt, I think, when they did the autopsy of Osaya Gall, she would have his DNA somewhere on her body. I, I don't think there's any doubt. Um, you know, it's referred to as often as touch DNA. Right. But, you know, you have biological transfers on just about any close contact with another human being. To, even to the extent if you greet someone and shake their hand, there's a real possibility that you've now left your DNA on the person's hand you just shook. And this being an extremely close and extremely violent interaction, I have absolutely no doubt that you're going to find his DNA uh, on, her, on her somewhere or in the immediate vicinity. And like I said, his clothing, when they find that, obviously his clothing is going to have his DNA all over it. Uh, this is a case where there is a wealth of evidence that any prosecutor would give their eye teeth to try. And any and any defense attorney would not want to take this damn case, right? No defense attorney would would want to try this case. This would be more of an inquest 
than a trial. The question isn't whether uh, he did it. It's what was in his intent. And with the number of stab wounds, I don't think there's any question as to what his intent was. You know, he may not have gone there with the intention of doing her harm. Um, but at some point, you know, as standard jury instructions say, intent can be formed in a second. And it's obvious from what happened that he intended to kill her. No, absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. If you want to be part of our Patreon and support us, we have three different levels. You can join our Patreon. Or if you want to become part of the Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories YouTube family, we have five different levels. You can see the folks in the chat with the green font. They're part of our YouTube family. We appreciate them. So you can join us that way. I'm going to show a little bit more of the walkout and the police press conference that explained a lot of this case. What do you They had been off and on, and they had broken up prior, but had reunited early in the month of April. And their relationship was considered at an end. Police say in addition to being the victim's boyfriend, Benola was also the family. Falls home on Juno Street early Saturday morning to talk about the relationship. He is either let in voluntarily or he uses a key he has knowledge about hidden in the barbecue. A violent struggle ensues. Ruthlessly and brutally in excess. Then allegedly placed her body inside her son's hockey bag. Before discarding it, he left behind his blood along with his jacket in the nearby. Detectives also developed leads which led them to a location where boots, a t shirt, and bloody bandages were discovered. Threatening text from her phone. He then went to the hospital. They found him with a bandaged hand. He told detectives he didn't go to the home with the intention. Well, obviously, you answered some of those questions that you uh, just previously said that. Uh, he didn't go there with the intent to kill her. However, the intent can happen rather quickly. And people had asked also about the knife. Did he bring the knife there? And apparently the knife was consistent with other cutlery that was in the house. So it seems like he grabbed the knife that was available inside the house. He didn't bring that knife to the crime scene with him. Yeah, like I said before, I, it, it certainly appears that they, the knife was a weapon of convenience. Uh, when I say weapon of convenience, it was probably close at hand when the anger began to build up. This seems like it was, um, you know, as we predicted early on, this was uh, really, a, when you think of it, it's a domestic violence case. If they had, in fact, had a two-year relationship, and they had their problems maybe as a couple, and it was breaking up. 
Uh, that's when most violence happens in the in in husband wife cases, boyfriend girlfriend cases. Is when one wants to end the relationship. Having prosecuted uh, quite a few domestic violence homicides, that is exactly when most of uh, the violence happens. When the victim, usually the victim of the crime, wants to end the relationship, uh, causing the perpetrator to become angry and raged, um, feeling violated by the person who's now breaking up with them. Uh, but you're right. That's when most of the violence happens, uh, when the relationship is coming to an end. Dan, the case has gone to arraignment. What else do you, as a prosecutor, as an experienced district attorney, what else do you want done on this case by the investigators? Well, the, I'm sure the New York City Police Department, the medical examiner's office have have basically packaged all the evidence up. It's all being submitted. You know, the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner has its own DNA lab. I'm sure all of the evidence right now is in DNA. Uh, probably take another week or two to uh, for the results to come out. Um, the medical examiner's office has one of the top DNA laboratories in the country. Um, so as a prosecutor, you're just, you're not, certainly not sitting, sitting back doing nothing, but you're going to, you're awaiting the results of the DNA. Um, and again, you're, the prosecutor is going to be in touch with the medical examiner's office, making sure that every last piece of evidence, every last piece of every piece of evidence is analyzed for DNA. In other words, they're not just taking one sample of blood from this location, one biological sample from another location that they're testing every possible piece of evidence and every every location on every piece of evidence. Uh, and I, the end result I'm pretty confident is that there's going to be a lot of DNA, both hers and his. Dan, talk about also how we marry up the electronic evidence vis-a-vis uh, -vis cell site information with all the other evidence that we are aware of right now, uh, I would imagine both the suspect and, of course, uh, the victim had their cell phones on, which would put them in locations that will be almost slam dunk evidence for the prosecutor. Well, I'm well, that's that's one of the other things the prosecutor is doing. Um, they'll have they'll get rudimentary information about what cell towers. Um, his phone and her phone were pinging off of, uh, but over in the next week or two, they will get detailed information and will most likely be able to plot uh, exactly where his self, well, where his cell phone was going. And shock of shocks, it's, it's not going to be a shock at all when his cell phone comes back, uh, leading him on that path from her house to where the body is dumped through Forest Park, outside of Forest Park, uh, to the hospital. So you not only have you not only have the his clothing on the path of his, for lack of a term, flight. Um, you're going to have cell tower information that's going to put him on that at those exact locations uh, where where the body was dumped, where his clothing was found um, in the hospital. So. All of that's going to corroborate all of the physical evidence. 
you know, in, in case a defense attorney might want to argue that, oh, this was planted by the police. Well, no, here you have the defendant, his cell phone going to all of these locations where evidence was recovered. You know, I, I wanted to also ask uh, in regards to him, what was it? What, as a prosecutor, what would you think, and I'm sure the officers, the detectives asked him this, what was his reason for removing the body from the crime scene and putting it in a hockey bag and dumping it a half a mile or three quarters of a mile away? What was his reasoning in that? That, Bill, is a puzzle to me. Uh, it actually provided the investigating detectives with more evidence than less. Uh, why he would choose to linger at the location and keeping in mind, I don't care how big she is, a dead body is a difficult thing to move around. Um, then package it up in a duffel bag and move it half a mile to three quarters of a mile from the house. I'd really like to know the answer to that question. I'm sure they asked them. And maybe someday when we get a transcript of his interrogation or with the video of his interrogation, uh, he, he has some kind of answer for it. But I certainly don't. I think his answer was that he didn't want the family to find it. But that doesn't make a lot of sense to me since he made that horrendous uh, text message to the husband trying to throw off the investigators that he was going to kill the whole family. So that explanation doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me either, Bill, simply because he's, I'm sure he's left behind, uh, forget about just the presence of the body, he's already left behind a horrendous scene. As I understand it, there are a number of stab wounds directly to the neck, um, most likely having severed arteries, and there would have been blood pouring out of Ms. Gall. And the scene itself, and again, as indicated by the defensive wounds on her hands, she put up a struggle. So that scene itself is going to be horrendous to discover, even with or without the body. It's, uh, I mean, I don't think maybe, Dan, in your entire career as a prosecutor, you've seen this much physical evidence. I could be wrong, but there is so much physical evidence in this case that, as you said, any prosecutor will be salivating at the thought of prosecuting this case. And, and one of the things I wanted to ask, is there any potential that he could go for a temporary insanity defense? Well, let's, let's, sorry, let me, let me talk about two things first. One, one thing first, you know, he's, he's charged right now with murder in the first degree. And they're really the only other, th I mean, murder in second degree, the, the theory that I was thinking of the potential charging him with murder in the first degree is under a torture theory. I don't, I don't necessarily know if 55 to 60 stab wounds is torture. If it's not, it's about as close as you could possibly get. So I think the Queens DA's office should think about charging him with murder one. It ups the potential range of penalties from a maximum of 25 to life to a maximum of life without parole. Uh, as far as insanity, you've got a couple of problems with, even though his attempts to dispose of evidence 
um, were amateurish at best. It clearly indicates a consciousness of guilt. And in classic insanity defenses, you have you you cannot you, you can't know the nature of your actions and that they were wrong. Clearly, by by taking the body, moving the body, putting it into a duffel bag, moving it from the scene, dumping it in a location, though amateurish and certainly quickly led to the discovery of about of who she was and where she was killed that clearly it indicates that he knew what he did was wrong. And let's assume for a minute that you, you're correct and that his explanation for moving the body was he didn't want the family to, uh, to experience discovery of the body in that condition in the house. That in and of itself also says that he's not legally insane, that he appreciated the wrongfulness of his actions because he's going about, number one, saving, he knows it's wrong because he's trying to save the family from anguish. Uh, he knows it's wrong because he's trying to, to distance himself from the crime. Uh, so an insanity defense, while viable in just about any case like this, I don't see it being, uh, being one that would succeed. On the other hand, I, uh, on the, on the other hand, there is a defense called extreme emotional disturbance. Uh, extreme emotional disturbance is an affirmative defense. In other words, the defendant has proved that he acted under a, an extreme emotional disturbance. 55 to 60 stab wounds clearly indicates rage, clearly, clearly indicates personal. If the theory of the prosecution is that she was putting finally putting an end to this, it could feed into a defense of extreme emotional disturbance. And you get a substantial reduction in, in exposure if a jury buys into an extreme emotional disturbance defense. It goes from murder to manslaughter. And instead of life being at the end of it, the maximum penalty for manslaughter excuse me, the minimum penalty for manslaughter is five years, the maximum penalty is 25 years. Whereas in murder one, you're talking a minimum of 20 to life and a maximum of life without parole. Murder two, a minimum of 15 to life and a maximum of 25 to life. So extreme emotional disturbance defense seems to me to be the only viable defense. And I'm sure that whoever, whoever has been assigned to represent them is already thinking about that. Right. Uh, you know, people had asked, um, oh, could he be charged? Could this be a death penalty case? And first of all, no, absolutely not. But not only that, in New York City, none of the district attorneys, maybe the Staten Island one, would, would go for the death penalty on just, uh, they don't believe in it. Well, there's no death penalty in New York. It was declared the death penalty statute in New York was declared unconstitutional, unconstitutional by the Court of Appeals quite a while ago. Oh, where was I when that happened? I didn't, I didn't realize that. <laughs> oh, it's long since gone. Uh, it's it's still on the books, but it's been, it was declared unconstitutional by the New York State Court of Appeals, which, by the way, for people who don't know, the New York State Court of Appeals is the equivalent of a Supreme Court. 
um, a, a state Supreme Court, like New Jersey has New Jersey Supreme Court, yeah. Pennsylvania has Pennsylvania Supreme Court, United States has a Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals is New York State's highest court. Okay. Christina Marty, the whole family knew him. He was in and out of the house for two years. He said he did not want her son to find her like that. I find that hard to believe, Christina Marty, that he actually, after stabbing the mom 55 times, he was having a bout of conscience and cared about the son. I find that unbelievable, but thank you for raising the possibility of that. Uh, he doesn't make sense. He's is he under the influence of drugs? Unknown. I don't know that. One of the things that I was surprised of is that he has no criminal history. You know, and folks are always shocked in the non-law enforcement world when someone graduates from no criminal history to this heinous type of murder. But Dan, you've seen this time and time again in your prosecutorial career that someone who was never arrested goes and the first time out is a murder. It's certainly not unheard of, and I prosecuted many homicides that the defendant had no criminal history. Right. Their first, their first step into the was the big one. The criminal world, yeah. A bird. There was talk from the female baristas at the local Starbucks saying he often made advances on them. I mean, but that doesn't make him a criminal. You know, that's. Uh, Makes him a cat, but not a criminal, you know. Uh, the rabbit. Uh, Brenda Bright, I don't like dealing with strangers coming into my home to do odd jobs. I mean, I think the, in this day and age, almost everyone has strangers coming into their house, whether it be a cleaner, uh, whether it be anything. I mean, Dan, you don't do electrical work, do you? I don't either. Uh, I don't do carpet. So, yeah, I have strangers coming into my house. You know, one of the things when they talk about the levels of risk for someone becoming a victim of a homicide is your exposure and how your exposure out in the world creates risk. And, you know, they, they list that, of course, as low, medium, and high risk. And high risk, maybe, if, you know, if you're pitching crack on 125th Street and Lawrence Avenue, you have a pretty high level of becoming a victim of a homicide. Whereas, you know, if you're a nun in, in a uh, convent, you have a pretty damn low. And I'm using extremes, of course. But the more you're exposed out in the world and with risky type of activities, and again, folks, I'm not victim blaming, but we have to, as law enforcement, we have to look at all of these things to find out what in fact occurred in, in this instance. And comment. I, I agree with you 100%. There's... Um... Some people could say it's victim shaming, but I, I'm sure that the New York City Police Department would not have come out with statements indicating that there was a prior intimate relationship unless there was more, certainly more evidence of that relationship uh, besides him saying there was. Uh, without the evidence of that relationship, him saying that there was, I'm not sure I would believe it. Uh, Certainly not victim shaming. And as far as you know, strangers coming into your house, I've have it all. You know, these days I'm doing doing work on my house, and there's people I've never met walking in my out and out of my house, doing work on it. Um, I certainly live in a low risk area, um, and I vet the people that are coming into my house through other professionals. So at least I have an idea of who they are. But keep in mind that according to the police department, this relationship between the two of them 
took place over two years. This was not a an isolated incident where he showed up at her house, did a little bit of work, and he went back that night and killed her. This is a relationship that was, according to the evidence uh, that the police department has, and now the DA's office has, this was a relationship that was going on for years, not just one or two days. No, absolutely, Dan. Uh, you know, let me make you put the other hat on, and I want to take oh. the prosecutor to you to hat off your head and put the hat of the defense attorney on. And if you were the defense attorney for David Bonola, what would you be doing? What kind of defense would you present? Right, right now, like I said before, I think that, I mean, without getting all the forensics, I'm assuming that the forensics are going to be bad for the defense, uh, that the DNA is going to be bad, that, and, and I lumped the, I lumped surveillance video and all of that stuff in with forensic that, that the, the surveillance is going to be, the surveillance video is going to be bad. The confession is going to be bad. That the evidence is going to pile up to the extent that you have no defense to what happened or who it was that did it. Right now, I'd be, I'd be focusing on the relationship between the victim and him. And I'd be concentrating on whether there was a viable extreme emotional disturbance defense. Like I said before, this is something that was 100% personal. The number of stab wounds, again, a knife being a, a weapon that you have to get close to use. I would be investigating an extreme emotional disturbance defense to the extent that that at some point, I may actually have him evaluated by a psychiatrist. Um, there's, you know, you eventually would have to inform the DA's office that you're going to use that defense. But at this point, you don't. You're not at that. You're not at that point in the proceedings that you have to serve notice of defenses yet, or notice that you're going to use psychiatric testimony. But I certainly would have him evaluated. As a defense attorney, that's one of the first things I would do. And you're not an, under an obligation to provide that to the DA's office un, un, until unless you're actually going to use that evidence at trial. Well, I mean, right. there's there are time limits that the criminal procedure law places on you as to when you must provide it to the DA's office. But if you ultimately decide not to present that defense, then you don't have to provide it. So, I mean, there are time frames that the CPL sets out but that's what i'd be doing right now i'd be waiting to, i certainly am waiting to see the, what the forensics say um i don't think any of it's going to be good for the defense as a matter of fact i think it's going to be terrible for the defense this is not a case of who who done it this is a case of and it's not a case of who done it and what happened it's going to be a case of what was going through his mind and i would be surprised if they didn't offer some kind of psychiatric defense not maybe a full insanity defense, but it, at a minimum, um, an extreme emotional disturbance defense. Dan, there's no chance that the district attorney will, will offer any type of plea deal. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, they they you know, want to take this case to trial, no doubt. And I wouldn't i I wouldn't be surprised if they're actually considering charging him with murder one under the, under the torture theory. 
Okay, yeah, because I yeah, people had asked that, and I I was looking at this the murder one statute, and I didn't see where it applied at all. There is there is one section of the law where it's under I think it's extreme cruelty and torture. Whether the, you know, it's a factual question as to whether this would fit under that subsection of the law. It it certainly ups the ante quite a bit. But even if you were char- you're just charging him with murder in the second degree, uh, if I was the DA's office, I'd be saying, and he's also charged with tampering with evidence, which could add a couple of years on top of the murder because it is a separate crime um, committed after the crime of homicide, the crime of murder has been committed. So if I'm the DA's office, you know, post-indictment, which I'm sure is going to happen probably today or Monday, uh, an indictment will be returned. Uh, post-indictment, my position is going to be pleads top count, maximum sentence. And then it becomes up to the judge. And if if I'm the judge in this case, uh, I probably say, you know, take the tam- eat the tampering with evidence. But if he wants to take a plea, he can have murder two and 25 for life. Right. Well, I won't give him consecutive sentences to anything else that they true that they charge him with by way of indictment. But that that's uh, there's not much of a chance that I don't think I, I would think that the uh, Queens District Attorney wants to take this to trial because it's a a good case for them to win, and it, of course it it enrages the community when something like this occurs. And you want you know of course what everyone in Forest Hills were thinking was that there's this crazed knife murderer around. Yeah. And what once they understood that this had no threat to them, that this was a one-on-one personal type of murder, which of course all the indicators were there from minute one that that it was that, but the neighborhood still gets pretty nervous, and you know they want justice, and their justice is a prosecution of this guy. I mean, if if you're going to see a plea in this case, it's not going to be for a while, and. Again, if if I'm sitting in Supreme Court trial, which is the trial level court court in New York and Queens, and I'm assigned this case, and a defense attorney comes to me and says, you know, Judge, what would you offer on a plea to the indictment? The word 25 to life would be coming out of my mouth. I, I don't think that any judge in the system is going to. And I don't think he'd take that. You know, Dan, another thing that a lot of maybe cynical people will be asking, is he going to get bailed? No. No, there's no there's no chance that any amount of bail is ever going to be set on him. Okay. You know, just because the craziness of the bail reform, uh, you know, we, we're used to nutty things happening, you know. Yeah, we're used to the revolving door. You know, yeah. commit a crime, get out, commit another crime, get arrested, get out, commit another crime, get arrested, get out. There's no chance that bail will be set in this case at any time. A, a, if an elected Supreme Court judge set bail on this guy and he was able to get out, I don't think they'd win their next election. No. <laughs> I'm going to no. take a quick commercial break. Joe Murray, attorney at law, jmurray-law.com. Joe Murray's a retired police officer, but also an outstanding defense attorney. You can reach him on his cell phone at 718-514-3855. 
or you can email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. He's a big supporter of Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. In fact, he's a frequent guest. John Beattie Law, www.jbeattielaw.com. John Beattie is a renowned personal injury attorney. He's also a retired, decorated NYPD sergeant. For over 15 years, John has litigated some of the largest accident and malpractice cases and verdict settlements in the country. John comes from a proud NYPD and FDNY family. He was an active sergeant in Brooklyn North and supervised in the legal bureau. John is a proud member of the Honor Legion and the Blue Knights. John Beattie litigates across the country for seriously injured victims and has helped recover over $200 million for grieving families. Call John now for a free consultation. John Beattie, 917-797-9520. And we just so happen to have as our guest today, another attorney, the law office of Daniel J. Bibb. And you can call him 24-7 for an initial consultation. And his law offices are at 261 Madison Avenue on the 12th floor. And Dan Bibb, as you can see, he knows the law. He's a hell of an experienced prosecutor and now one of the top defense attorneys in the New York metropolitan area. That was a freebie, Dan. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. <laughs> it's so great to have you on the show, Dan, because people really like you as a guest. You come across so genuine, and uh, you're so knowledgeable about the law. And this case is, I think it struck a lot of people. Uh, it hit the people hard, you know, that this one beautiful woman, uh, no matter what the background was, um, she lost her life, and she didn't deserve to lose her life. It, I'm sure that this it, it affects the community in ways that that people could never understand. Um, whether she was cheating on her husband, whether she, you know, was in an intimate relationship, there's no there's no explanation for something like this. Uh, you know, when I'm talking about legal defenses, I'm talking about being in a courtroom as a lawyer, but as a, as a human being, this is just one of the worst type of crimes that you could ever think of, even, even though it turns out to be a personal thing, it's still got to affect the community. Yeah. You know, in, as you know, in homicide investigation, many times uh, we get cases that are people that are players in the industry and by, by that, I mean, you get bad guy A shoots bad guy B and, you know, kills him. And there's, you know, is is there a victim there? Uh, yeah, there's a victim, but society's not going to miss the victim too much. But when you get a real homicide victim like this, it affects everyone and, and in, in a negative way. And then, of course, you look at her family, you look at her husband, you look at the circumstances surrounding this, and it's it's a real, it's a real case, you know. And the, the children, her children, you know, they're going to spend the rest of their lives thinking about their mother and what happened to her. Um, I, I think it's 13 and a 17-year-old. Uh, I, I just right. can't even... I can't even think of anything that could be so horrible as losing your mother in a situation like this. And, and no matter what you say about her conduct with him, um, yeah, her husband as well. You can only feel for her husband as well. 
Yeah, no, absolutely horrendous. A.O., has it been confirmed that she had multiple out-of-wedlock relationships? I've heard mixed reports. A.O., you know, that's not, like to our show, it's not really pertinent to this investigation. I'm sure the detectives know the truth behind that. I would think that a defense attorney will grab onto something like that to sort of maybe uh, create a smokescreen of the real the real issues, which are that this poor woman was murdered and her uh, her morals or her conduct really doesn't have, uh, shouldn't have any effect on, on what happened in regards to the murder. And Bill, I don't, you know, um, I don't think that even if she did, I don't think that a defense attorney trying to muddy waters would, would ever get any of that out at a trial because you, for it to be relevant at all to any type of defense, the defendant would have had to know about it. Other affairs. Um, again, we're talking about in support of uh, an extreme emotional disturbance defense where they're having a discussion and she's back at him. Well, I'm having an affair with this guy. I'm having an affair with that guy. And the hell with you. I don't want to see you anymore. He would have had to know about it for it to become at all relevant. And I seriously, you know, I, the only way that it becomes relevant is, he, is if he's going to testify. Because he would have to actually testify. I knew about these things and these are some of the things that she told me, which sent me into a rage. So whether she had other affairs or not, I don't think we'll ever will ever make an appearance in the courtroom. Right. Uh, dimensional mystic. It, it is relevant to this investigation. I, I mean, I don't know. I think it just sort of muddies the waters. What do you think, Dan? Well, I'm, I'm sure th that if there were other affairs that the detectives were looking, looked into them to dismiss them as having anything to do with the homicide. Once that those other the people other other people you're having an affair with are eliminated, you move on. And I'm sure if there were other, were other affairs, uh, I, listen, they went through her phone. I'm sure what they were doing is they were going through her phone, identifying all of the people who she was texting, who she was calling. Um, and they didn't call them. They went to see them. They went to interview them personally. So it wasn't some detective sitting at, sitting at a desk. Well, let me call this number and see if, you know, this person will talk to me. They, they went through her phone. They got subscriber information to all those numbers. They went out personally. There are probably teams of detectives who went out personally to interview every person who was in her phone. So, again, if there were other affairs, they were most likely dismissed out of hand. Um, yes, this person could not have done it. And, and I hate to say this, he became a suspect, not a person <laughs> of interest. Soon after the body was found, I'm sure. No, absolutely. You know that, folks. What Dan is referring to is that, um, and we talk about, and I mentioned it numerous times, the victimology, and it can be voluminous. Uh, he's talking about going to through her cell phone. There's a hell of a lot of people you want to interview, but mostly you want, you know, the investigation starts out here and it starts coming in like this. That gets. For those listening, I have my arms spread out wide and I'm pulling them in. The investigation gets fine-tuned. You start with a wide net, you start pulling the net in. 
Certainly, the people in her cell phone are very pertinent to interview to get an idea of what's going on in her life. Peter Rabbit, do the wounds on her hands count towards the stab wounds? Yes, absolutely. That's what's known as defense wounds, which shows that the perpetrator is slashing or, or stabbing at the person, and the, the victim is blocking the stab uh, the knife and, yes, of course, receiving more stab wounds. Tennessee girl, the 13-year-old will feel so much guilt because he was in the house and didn't hear his mom. Uh, absolutely. He's going to have to live with that for the rest of his life. Horror. There's so many horrible things about this case. Uh, Eddie Smith. Hello, guys. Uh, Peter Rabbit. Yeah, it is horrible. Folks, you know, this, when I, as I said yesterday and on other days, homicide investigation is an ugly it's an ugly type of investigation. There's nothing pretty about it. And we have to, the investigators and the district attorney has to get down in the mud and, and, and find out dirty stuff that, you know, that, that caused someone to lose their life. It starts out with a dead body. Doesn't get yeah. dirtier. It doesn't get dirtier than that. And then, you know, the skills that we use and the investigative techniques that we use, you know, People love to quote Vernon Gebberth, the author of uh, Practical Homicide Investigation, who likes to say, we work for God, you know, in finding out who the perpetrator is of a murder. And there's some truth to that, but we also work with the deceased family. And we want to find out and bring someone to justice and take someone's life. That is always the objective. 100%. You know, Dan, I, I think that we covered this uh, case pretty well today. I mean, I had first thought that um, when I was going to ask you as a defense attorney, uh, you know, how would you how would you represent him? And um, as a prosecutor, you know that this is a prosecutor's case. The prosecutor is uh, he's, on, he's on the three yard line, you know, and he's got the ball. For the first down, you know. Well, uh, Bill is the prosecutor. Not only is awaiting forensics, uh, the results of all the DNA, and he's not only getting getting all his eggs in one basket. He's also thinking about potential defenses, and it, I am absolutely sure that the assistant DA assigned to this case is thinking what type of psychiatric defense could he use. Is there a legitimate insanity defense here? Is there a legitimate extreme emotional disturbance defense here? So they're not just preparing their case um, for a you know a presentation in court. They're preparing their case for a defense as well. They're looking they're they're looking for the same things that I would be looking for as a defense attorney. Is there a legitimate psych defense? Is there a legitimate what they call EED, extreme emotional disturbance defense? And how do I counter that? Um, I'm sure in they're doing all of their research on the defendant. They're trying to find out if he's ever been hospitalized, where he's been hospitalized, not just for medical issues, but potential psychiatric issues as well. Um, although it, they would not have the right to subpoena those records uh, due to uh, HIPAA, the Health Health Insurance Protection uh, Act, uh, they 
they're, they want to know and they want to be prepared should a psychiatric defense be interposed um, through either a, an insanity, traditional insanity defense or an EED defense. So they're not just preparing their own case. They're trying to anticipate what the defendant's next move is going to be. Yeah, this is um, it's the defendant's attorney's next move is going to be. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating case, but I think it's a extremely tough case to defend because of the treasure trove and the tons of, of physical evidence, uh, video evidence, electronic evidence they're going to have, and uh, I think the Queens District Attorney is going to have a uh, a pretty smooth sail towards a, towards a conviction in this. But you know, you, as you say, you never know what a jury will do. I. I've taken cases to a jury 110, 120 times in 40 years I've been doing this, and you never know. when. The only time you know is when the foreperson of the jury stands up and announces the verdict. That's when you know. Right. Exactly. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm going to give you um, last words. Do uh, you have any last words to say in regards to this case? Well, I think, they, you know, from from the outside looking in, I think the NYPD did, a, NYPD did a great job putting this together. They had him in custody within days, uh, probably had him identified shortly thereafter, had him in custody within days. Uh, I, it's, it is such a sad event for the family. I could not even imagine being her husband and her children. I hope they find some solace in the fact that he's been arrested and hopefully will spend most of the rest of his life in prison. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day, and we'll see you on the next one. One episode.